We are in middle of the 13 principles of faith. And that, of course, is the codified beliefs of the Jewish people. And we're up to principle number eight, which is the divinity of the Torah. And we decided to talk not just about the divinity of the Torah in a narrow sense, but to really understand the nature, the structure of the Torah, the written Torah, the oral Torah, how they interrelate. And today, I want to take that subject to the next level. I want to understand the history of the transmission of the Torah and a little bit about the nature of the transmission and the perpetuation of the Torah, how Torah evolved, how Torah was innovated, how Torah changed from Moses until today. Of course, that's a big subject, and we're going to only take a small piece out of it because it's very vast, but we're going to give the the outline of how Torah changed and how it developed until today, even though we're not going to cover it until today, but we're going to give the 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 insight, the big picture of how these things work. Now, the first mention on Perka Avos tells us that the Torah was transmitted from Moshe at Sinai. Moshe gets it from God. And then he passes it off to Joshua. Now, last time we spoke about this subject, we said that it wasn't just to Joshua. He gave it to Aaron and Aaron's children and to the rest of the Jewish people. In effect, they all heard the Torah from Moshe. What this means is, is that Moshe passed the baton of leadership, the responsibility of maintaining the accuracy in the perpetuation of the Torah, he passed that on to the next leader of of the generation, namely to Joshua. And after Joshua got it, of course, he led the people with great skill, and he passed it on to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets passed it on to the men of the great assembly. This Mishnah, the first Mishnah of Avos, actually covers around a thousand years from the time of Moshe until the beginning of the Second Temple Era, around 350 years before the Common Era. Rambam actually enumerates a more comprehensive list. He gives us the 40 generations, all the way from Moses until Rav Ashi, the compiler of the Babylonian Talmud. Now, over the course of these centuries and these generations, we're going to have change in the Torah, development, innovation of the Torah. We're going to learn about the dynamism of Torah, what changed, and of course, what stayed the same. And I think this will illuminate our subject, Torah in general, the divinity of Torah, and to really understand the relationship of the Torah we have today, the core of which we got from Moses at Sinai, and all the things that were added, and what is the nature of those things that were added, and how does it relate to us today. So we spoke about Moshe already in the past. He, of course, received the Torah at Sinai, and he didn't just get the laws, he got the details, the principles, the nuances... And over the course of the 40 years in the wilderness, he conveyed those principles and those details to the Jewish people. But the Talmud tells us that there were parts of Moshe's transmission that he did not receive from God. The Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos, page 30a, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our master, Gazar Kamagizeros. He decreed several decrees and he enacted several ordinances. And behold, they are upstanding, they are immutable forever. So this, I think, adds another layer to our discussion of Torah. There were decrees and ordinances that Moshe instituted. He didn't get them from God. This was his innovation. 
under what jurisdiction can Moshe make decrees? Where is his mandate? So it's important to note that this is a very important principle of Torah, and it's based upon a verse in Scripture. The verse in Scripture in Leviticus 18.30 tells us, you should guard my decrees. And what this means is that there is a mandate upon the leaders of the Jewish people to maintain safeguards for the Almighty's Torah. And that's the idea of a fence. God says, don't do X, and God tells the leaders of each generation, make sure that X is maintained in its sanctity. And therefore, you have to make a fence around it to prevent that from being transgressed. So we have the commandment to safeguard the commandments by making decrees and ordinances and even new laws to ensure that Torah is being kept in each generation. So if you ever heard the term rabbinic law, this refers to a component of Torah law that mandates the rabbis, i.e. the leaders of each generation, to do things to ensure that Torah is being maintained. And these are collectively called rabbinic law, but they fall into various different categories. You have what's called a decree. And that's the idea of a fence around the Torah. God says, don't write on Shabbos. Rabbis say, don't fiddle with a pen on Shabbos. That's a decree. That's to maintain the Torahitic law the rabbis are required when they see it necessary to add, to enact a decree to protect that. And that, of course, is sanctioned by the Torah. That's part of the mandate jurisdiction of the rabbis. They're told to do it in the Torah. So in effect, it's kind of grandfathered in by Torah law. That's a decree. What about an ordinance? An ordinance is not a negative decree. It's in fact a positive custom. So an example of this would be Moshe made an ordinance to read from the Torah every week three times, on Monday, on Thursday, and of course on Shabbat. And the reason why Moshe made this ordinance was to ensure the Jewish people don't go three days without Torah study. And therefore, if you have these three days out of seven where there is communal Torah study, this ordinance ensures that people never get too far away from Torah. And then you have the third component of rabbinic law, and that is rabbinic mitzvos. And these are actually very rare. There's only seven mitzvos that were added, brand new mitzvos that were added by the rabbis that are not reinforcements of existing Torah law from Moshe. But it's important to stress, even though we call it rabbinic law, and we don't consider Moshe to be like a rabbi per se, even though he's called Moshe Rabbeinu, but he's not from the era of rabbis. He's, of course, the original, the OG, the one who gave us the Torah. Yet already with Moshe, we have decrees and ordinances that he gave. Now, the Talmud does not give us an exhaustive list of Moshe's decrees and ordinances. We have to go throughout the Talmud to find a selection of them. So some of them, like we mentioned, to read the Torah three times a week. The exact text of the first blessing of the Berkat Amazon, the grace after meals, that was codified by Moshe. The seven days of mourning. Someone, God forbid, loses a relative. Seven days of mourning. That comes from an ordinance of Moshe, seven days, on the flip side, of celebration after a wedding. What's called the Sheva Brachos, that is 
the work of Moshe, other examples to study the laws of a festival 30 days before that festival. That is a ubiquitous custom that was enacted by Moshe. And there are many others that we won't detail because it is quite vast. But we see that this already gets started all the way at the very beginning. Moshe is alive. Moshe is still giving us Torah. Moshe is still giving us the 40 years of transmission of Torah, the Sinaitic Torah, and he's already incorporating rabbinic law, mosaic law, if you will, and he's giving us decrees and ordinances. Now, these decrees and ordinances actually comprise a very large part of what we call Torah and Judaism today. And even though the rabbi, the leader of the generation, is given a lot of latitude and flexibility in determining what they choose to focus on, what decrees, what ordinances to make, the Talmud tells us that we don't make a decree upon the public unless at least the majority can withstand it. So this is not going to be draconian. It's going to be themes that people accept, make sense with people, and people are able to do it. If it's too hard, it's not done. In fact, we'll talk about this a little bit later. There were decrees that historically were made that because the public refused to accept it, it actually did not become binding. It's only when the leader makes a decree and the nation, it really resonates with them, and then it's adopted by everyone, only then does it get incorporated into rabbinic law and oral Torah. So Moshe is spending 40 years giving us the Almighty's Torah with all the details, and he's also adding selected rabbinic law, and that's the course of these 40 years. Now, it is quite interesting that there were a few laws that Moshe actually forgot along the way. So, for example, we just had this this past week, the law that daughters inherit the ancestral land in Israel in the event that a man bears no sons. This is in Numbers chapter 27. We have a gentleman by the name of Tzlafchad, and he has five daughters and no sons, and he dies before the conquest of Canaan. And we know that the ancestral land goes from father to son. Well, what if there are no sons? Does it go to daughters? That was the question that was posed to Moshe. And Moshe did not know the law. And he had to go to God to discover this law. And actually, the Talmud tells us there were several laws that Moshe actually forgot. He, he knew them, but he forgot them. And those are really interesting episodes to study to understand exactly why Moshe forgot it. And that is discussed in the Talmud. But this is really interesting. This is like a, a, a glitch in the system. Right? Moshe has given us Torah, and suddenly a question is posed to him, and he doesn't know the answer. So what does he do? He goes to God. And God says to him, you know what? The daughters of Tzlavchad are making a good argument. And indeed, in the event that a man has no sons, and he has just daughters, the daughters inherit the ancestral land. But what's interesting about this is that this is only going to apply during Moshe's lifetime. Because Moshe is the one who is conveying Torah. He is the originator. He is that link, that Sinaitic link between God and the Jewish people. When he doesn't know a law, he's able to go to God. Once Moshe passes, that get-out-of-jail-free card, that easy answer, cheating on the test, going to God, is going to be eliminated. 
And that's going to create the challenge of Torah. How do we perpetuate Torah with, of course, 613 mitzvos, but each one of them is, is categories with thousands of mitzvos within them, and myriad manifold laws over the course of generations, living in all kinds of difficult situations, how are we going to patch the Amadi's Torah without the fallback option of let's just go ask God? And that's going to really dominate Jewish history, really essentially until today, this quest to maintain the accuracy in the perpetuation of the Torah even Moshe made a mistake of Moshe, the most infallible that we get is still fallible, we're going to have to wrestle and contend with the fact that mistakes happen, we are fallible, and what exactly is the protocol when mistakes happen or when things are forgotten, that's going to be a very important subject of Jewish history. But for the most part, Moshe is teaching the laws. He's conveying them in a way, the unique way that we out- outlined last time. He brings in, he brings in Joshua, he brings in Aaron, he brings in Aaron's sons, and he does it in this way where he teaches it four times and everyone else hears it four times and they study it. And thus, the nation spent 40 years in continuous state of study until his passing. What happened after Moses' death? What now? So there's a very informative teaching in the Talmud. And this, again, reveals the nature and the challenge of the transmission of Torah. This is found in the book of Timura, page 16a. It tells us that over the course of the mourning period of Moshe, 3,000 laws were forgotten. And the people rush to Joshua. He, of course, is the appointed successor. And they say to him, okay, ask God. We have to know the answer. We don't have Moshe here. You're in charge. Go ask God. Isn't that what Moshe did? So Joshua responds to them, quoting the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Lo bashamayim he. Torah is no longer in the heavens. We can no longer go up to heaven, page God, and find the answer. And the Talmud says that there were still questions that festered over the course of generations, and even hundreds of years later, the nation went to Samuel. Of course, Samuel, a prophet, par excellence, according to some opinions of the Talmud, equal to Moses and Aaron. And they say to him the same question, go ask God. And he responds, no, I can't do it. They go to Pinchas, go ask God. And he says, no, it's not in the heavens. They say to Elazar, these are all the leaders of the Jewish people, go ask God. And he says, no, this is not in the hands of the prophets. Now, the Talmud diverges to explain why it was forgotten. It was forgotten because before Moshe's death, we know the entire book of Deuteronomy happens the month before Moshe passes. And he is encouraging the nation. He's berating the nation. He's trying to prepare the nation for the challenges ahead. The Talmud tells us that when Moshe was about to die, he goes over to Joshua and he says to him, ask me any question, any doubt, I will resolve it for you. And Joshua responds almost hubristically, did I ever abandon you? Wasn't I always at your side? Didn't you yourself write in your Torah in Exodus chapter 33 that Joshua, Moshe's attendant, did not depart from the tent even for a second? So Joshua is saying, I've been, I've been here all the way. I don't need anything. Whatever you know, I know. And because he made Moshe feel bad, 
Therefore, he forgot all these laws. And the Talmud goes on to say that the people were not happy with Joshua, not one little bit. And they wanted to kill him. And as a diversion, God says to Joshua, I can't reveal to you the answer. Torah is not in the heavens. But I could cause a diversion. Let's go busy the nation with war of conquest of Canaan so they won't kill you because you forgot the law. And the Talmud goes on to say that Asniel ben Kenaz, he is an important figure in Jewish history, he's one of the first judges, first leaders of the Jewish people in the time of Joshua, but then also succeeding Joshua, with his logic and with his study and with his immersion of Torah, was able to restore a lot of the laws that were lost. So this fascinating Talmud, I think it reveals the challenge of the transmission of the Torah. It has to be done by fallible humans, and you cannot rely on prophecy. Torah is no longer in the heavens. And what happens if laws are forgotten? Well, it is a great calamity. We're losing the greatest gift in human history, the Almighty's Torah. And the people, perhaps justly, wanted to kill Joshua. But the Talmud concludes with an empowering idea that with the force of our logic and study, it is possible for us to restore what was lost. So this is demonstrating how the transmission of the Torah is somewhat getting off onto a rocky start right with the death of Moshe. Immediately, we're plunged into the challenge that has faced our nation since that time. Now, Joshua, like Moses before him, also innovated, also added rabbinic law, also added decrees and ordinances. So, for example, if Moshe, he codified the text of the first blessing of the Berkat Joshua is the author of the second blessing of Berkat The prayer, Aleinu L'Shabeach, that we say at the end of the prayer, that is the work of Joshua. And the Talmud also adds, of course, Joshua was responsible for the division of the land. So now everyone is living on their own land. What to do with neighbors? So there's 10 different enactments that, that Joshua did to ensure that people are having good neighbor relations. Like, can I walk into your field? Can you walk into my field? Can I cut your grass? Can you cut my grass? What if my animal grazes in your field? All those laws, there were 10 enactments that Joshua did to smooth out the process of now living in a land, each person in their own ancestral parcel of land. But this is interesting. Joshua is making innovations. Obviously, these were good ideas. and These were accepted by the entire Jewish people. But if they're good ideas, why didn't Moshe do it? If it's a good idea, Moshe should have done it. If it's not a good idea, well, then why did Joshua do it? And this is, I think, the portal to try to understand another very central component of Torah. And to introduce it, I want to kind of raise the states. I want to compound the question by quoting some citations from the Talmud. So we mentioned earlier that Moshe's acceptance of Torah 
was really complete. In fact, the Talmud book of Brachos, page 5a, tells us that on the doorstep of Sinai, when Moshe about to go up the mountain, God says, I'm going to give you the stone tablets. That means, says the Talmud, Ten Commandments. And I'm going to give you the Torah. That means the text of Scripture. And I'm going to give you the mitzvah. That's a reference to the Mishnah, the laws. That I wrote, that is a reference to the prophets and the writings. To instruct them, that is a reference to the Talmud. Concludes this citation. This teaches us that all of these, the stone tablets, Scripture, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the writings of the prophets were all given to Moses at Sinai. Ergo, Moshe knew things that came even after his death. The Talmud elsewhere, the book of Megillah, page 19b, quotes a different verse. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, where it talks about what was written upon the tablets. It says as follows, This teaches us that God showed Moshe all the inferences of Torah, all the inferences of the sages, all the novel insights of future sages, including the Megillah. The Megillah, Megillah's Esther, the book of Esther we read on Purim, to commemorate events that happened in the 4th century before the Common Era, so almost a thousand years after Moshe's passing, Moshe knew about that as well. Moshe's knowledge was totally comprehensive. Another source, this is from the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, in the book of Peah, chapter 2, law number 4. And what this citation tells us is that even what a veteran student is going to innovate in front of their teacher, a new idea in 2020, someone comes up with a new idea in Torah, that too was given to Moshe at Sinai. So these sources indicate that there was no innovation that was not known to Moshe. His revelation of Torah was complete. It included everything that came subsequently. Yet we see that Joshua did innovate. There was something that Moshe apparently didn't know or didn't do. And to make matters worse... The Talmud, the book of Shavuos, page 39a, it's talking about what Moshe was telling the Jewish people right before he passed. So he gathered them together. This is in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. And he made a covenant with the nation. And he tells them, I'm not just making a covenant with you. I'm making a covenant with you and your future descendants, whoever's standing here with us today and whoever's not standing with us today. And the Talmud says that includes future generations and future converts, they too are grandfathered in to this Mosaic covenant. And then it adds, Moshe makes this covenant binding the Jewish people to adherence to Torah, but not just to the Torah that existed then, to the Torah that came subsequently. And the example the Talmud gives is the reading of the Medilla. When Moshe Again, a few days before his passing, when he gathers the nation, he says, you have to keep Torah. And that's our deal. That's our covenant. He was actually referring to rabbinic law that came a thousand years hence. So this is really interesting. In one Talmud, we're told, Moshe knew everything. And the example of the things that he knew was the reading of the Megillah. 
a mitzvah idea that commemorates events that happened nearly millennium after Moshe's passing. The second source is describing the mitzvah of the Medilla as something that is futuristic, that was not present at the time, but was developed later. Which one is it? And finally, the most difficult source on this subject is found in the book of Talmud in Menachos, page 29b. This is a very difficult citation of Talmud for more than one reason, and I believe we have mentioned it in the past. It's telling what happened to Moshe when he ascended Mount Sinai the first time to get the Torah. Right after the revelation, Ten Commandments, goes up the mountain, he's going to spend 40 days and 40 nights getting the details of the Torah. And he sees the Almighty making crownlets and jotlets above the letters. And he says, why are you doing that? Why are you embellishing the Torah this way? So God tells Moshe, well, there's going to be a man in many generations. And his name is Rabbi Akiva. And he's going to take every crownlet, every jot and tittle of the Torah, and going to derive piles and piles of laws from every jot and tittle. So Moshe is fascinated by this. And he says to God, let me see him. Give me a vision of Rabbi Akiva. And instantly, Moshe is put into the time machine and is transported 1,500 years into the future, and he's sitting in a lecture hall of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is giving a lecture to his students, and Moshe does not understand what's going on. And he gets sad. He gets depressed. And then he's listening to this lecture, and then the students are asking Rabbi Akiva questions, and they ask him, where do you source this particular law? So he responds, this is a halacha l'moshe Messinai. This is a law that comes from Moshe at Sinai. And when Moshe hears that, right away he is appeased, he is assuaged, he is mollified. He's happy. He goes back to God, and now he's been so impressed, so wowed by the Torah prowess of Rabbi Tiva. He says, okay, show me his reward. And the Almighty quizzically shows Rabbi Tiva being tortured in a horrific and macabre fashion. He goes back to God and says, this is Torah and this is its reward. And God says to him, quiet, you don't understand. So that second part of this Talmud we discussed when we talked about why bad things happen to good people, Rabbi Tiva is the canonical example of a good person who bad things happen to, and this source tells us that Moshe was bothered by the dissonance between Rabbi Tiva's righteousness and his faith, and that is a subject that we discussed in the past. But one of the most difficult problems with this story is that Moshe ostensibly the bastion of all knowledge, of all Torah knowledge, he is sitting in Rabbi Tiva's lecture hall, and Rabbi Tiva's giving a lecture, and Moshe does not understand what they're saying. How can we say, on one hand, that Moshe is a repository of all Torah knowledge, yet he's sitting in Rabbi Tiva's Torah lecture, and he does not know what Rabbi Tiva is saying? So what I'm trying to convey here is that there seems to be a contradiction in the sources between Moshe's comprehensive knowledge of Torah and the fact that something else was added later. How can it be? Is it all for Moshe? Is it something came later? Or how do we reconcile these apparent conflicts? And I think that there are several answers. 
and they are not necessarily mutually exclusive. But this question, I think, does maybe get to the heart of the dynamism of Torah over the generation. So I did see one answer in a book. This is a great book. I'm not going to tell you what the book is because I'm going to lambast it, the answer. But I saw it's a very good book, but I think it gives a very weak answer. What he says, what he says to try to reconcile Rabbi Tiva's wizardry, so to speak, that's beyond Moshe, is that we know that the Torah, the oral Torah, is principles. So the Talmud, there was no pizza in the Talmud. Hadn't been invented yet, or maybe it was just in Italy and not in Israel. So there is no Talmudic citations about pizza. How do we know a blessing to make on pizza? So the answer is that oral Torah is not just about teaching discrete laws. It's about teaching laws and trying to understand the principle that undergirds that law that can then be reapplied to new things. So Moshe, to our knowledge, did not have a refrigerator. But the principles of Torah that Moshe gave us, we can deduce the principles, extract the principles, and reapply them to refrigerators and pizzas and jet skis, right? That's one of the steals of Torah. And the Torah sage has to know what things are comparable to what, what is the actual root, what is the actual principle of a given oral Torah idea, and how can that be reapplied, and maybe there are differences, and that's a large part of, of oral Torah study. So what this book suggested is that, you know, Mo- Moshe's, what well, we're talking about, the, you know, 30, 300 years ago, we're talking about 13th century before the Common Era. And that's, I don't know, the Middle Bronze Age, whatever that is. And Rabbi Tiva, 1500 years later, there's all kinds of new technology that Moshe was not aware of. So he's talking about uh, a certain item that Moshe never saw. And that's why Moshe doesn't understand it, because he doesn't understand the example. But of course, the Torah principles Moshe knew it all. That's one of the answers. I don't find that to be persuasive at all. I find it to be very weak because the Talmud is describing Moshe is is distraught by not knowing Torah. If he did know it, he just didn't know the example, the application. So first of all, he could learn the application. But second of all, if that's the only problem in Moshe's experience, why is he so upset about it? The Torah is the same. I think there are other answers that are much more persuasive and probably much more accurate, but also will help us understand this very important subject. So an answer that I had, I think it's an easy answer. The Talmud starts off by saying that when Moshe goes up to heaven, he sees God writing a Torah scroll, making crownlets. So Moshe's there for 40 days. And at what point in the 40 days is this episode happening? Seems to be that this is when Moshe goes up. Maybe that's day one, day two, it's at the beginning. Maybe at the end of the 40 days, when Moshe got the whole Torah, maybe by then he would have known what Rabbi Tiva was expounding. But this is at the beginning of the duration of the 40 days, and consequently he didn't know that yet. In fact, there is sources in the Talmud that Moshe was taught Torah and he forgot it, and he was taught and he forgot it, and only at the end it was given to him as a gift. So maybe at this juncture of the 40 days, he didn't know it. I think that's an easy answer. It doesn't really help us to try to build out our understanding of Torah, but I think it's an easy answer to, to just to reconcile that particular teaching in the Talmud. There's another answer that is found in the Ar HaChaim, one of the great commentators on Torah. This is in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 
37. And he gives us a very wonderful insight. He says, of course, Moshe knew it all. And there is nothing that Rabbi Tiva knew, that any future sage knew, above what Moshe knew. If you were to collect all the insights, all the information that all the future generations had and bundled all together, there's nothing that Moshe didn't know amongst that. But the format of Moshe's knowledge was different than what was innovated in the future. Moshe, he had oral Torah, he had written Torah. But the connections between the two, the links between the two, how these two are mirror images in totally different formats, that was not given as a gift, so to speak, to Moshe. That is left for future generations. The job of the Jewish people is to understand how these two bodies, these two corpuses of Torah are identical and to try to discover the roots of oral Torah in the written Torah. And he goes on to elaborate. The Tanoim, the authors of the Mishnah, they wrote all these books and their books are to try to connect the laws of the oral Torah with the text of the written Torah. That is our job until today, to see the the unity, the synergy of Torah, and that was not given completely to Moshe. So Rabbi Kiva's expounding, he's teaching. What's he teaching? He's teaching on the this, this other vector, so to speak, of Torah knowledge, not that Moshe did not know the laws or the text, and not that there's any information that is beyond Moshe. All the information that came up, all the laws that come up even in the future, Moshe knew, but the connection and the unity, so to speak, of written Torah and old Torah, that is what Moshe was lacking, and that's the job given to future generations. This is, I think, a, a powerful insight that, again, shows how both statements can be true. Moshe knew it all. We can still innovate because there is still room that is carved out for us. I think there is a different answer that we could perhaps speculate. Moshe, at this juncture, is in the heavens with God. And we've talked about in the past how there's the heavenly Torah, so to speak, and the earthly Torah. And Moshe is the link that takes the heavenly Torah, empties, so to speak, heaven of Torah, and brings Torah here. So afterwards, Torah is no longer in the heavens, right? And that's Moshe's job. He takes the Torah from the heavens, he clears out, scrapes Torah out of heaven, so to speak, and brings it all here. Once it's here, it's our Torah. And we have certain liberties, of course, within certain parameters, to innovate in Torah. But at that time, Moshe is still in heaven. And consequently, at that time, there was parts of Torah that had no longer been unlocked, because they're only unlocked once Torah is given to us. And again, like we spoke about earlier, Joshua forgets all the laws, and he has this rejoinder, ask God, and the response is that Torah is no longer in the heavens, it's in our hands, and then it is more malleable, then it is more subject to our innovation. I want to share one more final perspective on this question. Again, the broad question of the coexistence of Moshe knowing it all, yet leaving room for us to innovate. And this comes from the Tosfos Yamtef, 
one of the great commentators on Mishnah, and incidentally, an antecedent of mine. And of course, like I mentioned at the top, these answers are not mutually exclusive. Each one of them will help us build our perspective of what Torah is. So he points out that there is a difference between transmitting Torah and discovering Torah and revealing Torah. And he points out that the Talmud says that Moshe was shown several laws. There's parts of Torah that Moshe knew, Moshe was privy to, Moshe witnessed, but Moshe did not teach. He did not pass it on. It was not included in oral Torah, and he left room for future generations to discover it with their Torah study. Then he points out a very deep and empowering point. What happens when the later sages reveal Torah that Moshe had seen, Moshe had known, but had not conveyed to the Jewish people? In effect, when a future sage discovers Torah that Moshe knew but didn't teach, and then he teaches that, he is participating in the revelation of Torah. Moshe left some work for us to do. We too can have a mosaic experience of bringing Torah down from the heaven. If someone today merits to discover a novel insight in Torah, they can be a bit like Moses. We can bring some of the Torah that he saw above, but didn't bring below. We can finish the job. So these perspectives, I think, really help us understand what role the sages are playing over the course of the centuries. They're not just guardians of the oral Torah. The oral Torah is actually dynamic. It's going to be innovated. They're going to add upon it. They're going to discover parts of it. They're going to teach parts of it. There's going to be discoveries that are still available today. And that's why the publishing industry in the Torah world is gargantuan. The amount of people that are studying Torah it's very small. We're studying Torah at a very deep, advanced level. It's very small. Yet the amount of publishing that gets done in this sector is astronomical. Why? Because the Torah is infinite. The Torah, and even Moshe didn't know all of Torah. Moshe knew as much as a human can know, but only God knows it all. Because only God is infinite. And therefore, there is still room for innovation. There are still books that can be written there are still insights that can be discovered. Of course, Moshe knew them all, but there's still room for us to discover. So what we've discovered hitherto is that when we talk about transmitting of Torah, it's more than just conveying principles verbatim from Moshe. It's not dry, it's alive, it's dynamic, and it's going to evolve over time within certain parameters. And Moshe, of course, gave us a complete Torah. And we argue that, of course, with the additions that were added, the decrees and the ordinances, the laws over the years, we believe that we still have the exact Torah, the core at least, that we got from Moshe. There were stuff that were added over the, over the course of the centuries, but we still have it today. And the next subject we're going to cover is, okay, so we have Moshe, we have Joshua, well, what next? How do we get from there until the Mishnah and the Talmud and even until today? How does Torah develop 
and change, yet maintain its core without alteration, with accuracy, how does that work? What were the challenges along the way? And what were the decisions needed to ensure that we still have the Almighty's Torah as given to Moshe until today? My email address is rabbiwalbajim.com. I look forward to hearing any questions, any comments, any feedback of any kind. I deeply appreciate it.